0: Welcome to sit now. There are Bibles uh, by the pillars or on the bookcases to the left or the right. Helen is going to come and read to us and then Daniel is our speaker today. Thank you.
1: The reading is from 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 13 to chapter 2 verse 3 and can be found on page 1217 on the church Bibles. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Good evening, everyone. I can't tell you what a relief it is to hear that the reading that is read is the same one as the passage that I've prepared for, because otherwise this would be a wholly improvisational sermon, which would probably not go quite as well. But fortunately, the passage that we've looked at just now is the same passage as the one I've been looking at um, this week. And we're looking at the concept of being set apart. And in particular, we're going to start in verses 15 and 16 of our passage today. If we can go to the next slide. which says this, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. This word here, holy, is the Greek word hagios, used by Peter, which means set apart, pure, or morally blameless. And this verse 16, where he's quoting from Leviticus, is a quote from Hebrew, where the Hebrew word is karosh, which I probably butchered horribly. But that also means sacred or set apart. And the idea here, is that Peter is writing to tell us that we are set apart and that God himself is set apart. And so as we look through this passage, we're going to look at three ways in which God has already set us apart and three ways in which we should act as people who are set apart. So let's pray before we start going into this. Lord God, I pray that you would speak through me now. Would you help me to say the words that you have for me to say? Or would you help us all to hear what you have to hear for us today? Amen. So the first way that we've been set apart is in our hope because of our salvation. So this stems from verse 13, where we're going to be starting. Verse 13 says this, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. I've used a slightly different translation on the, um, on the slides for reasons that I'll come to in a minute. But the first word here is therefore, which suggests that this follows on from what Peter has been saying already. And what has Peter been saying already? Well, we heard a little bit about this last week, since this is, the first, this is the second in a series on Peter. And there was a lot that we heard about from last week, but one of the main things that Peter was talking about throughout this section was our salvation. For instance, in verse 9, he tells his audience that you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And I believe it's this that we're carrying on from. And so, in other words, where we're starting here is moving on already from knowing about the salvation that we've received already. And it's important to note that this is salvation that we have received already. That verse 9 that we were looking at just then says, you are receiving the end result of your faith. This is a process that's already happened. We have already received this salvation. And it is because of that that we're setting our hope where we're told to. And what does this passage say? It says, therefore, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is one reason why I've chosen this translation rather than the one in the NIV. The NIV attaches the word fully to sober, whereas the ESV and other translations attach fully to the hope that we're talking about. And both are, I think, legitimate readings of the passage, but I feel like the purpose that Peter is trying to set across in this passage is more that we should be setting our hope fully on this grace and on this salvation. And in particular, there are two ways in which we're told to prepare for this. We're told to prepare our minds for action and to be sober-minded. In the ESV, this phrase is prepare your mind for action. In the NIV, this is with minds that are alert. The literal translation of this is to gird up the loins of your mind, which understandably is perhaps slightly less clear. But this would have meant something to his audience 2,000 years ago. Essentially, at the time, uh, men at that time would have worn these long flowing tunics. And for any of you who are currently wearing long flowing tunics, you can follow this handy guide and learn how to gird up your loins yourselves. Essentially, what would happen is they would roll up this um, this tunic, and they would basically fashion some form of short out of it. And the reason they would do this is because the long flowing robe was very good for maintaining temperature and all those things. But it wasn't very useful if you needed to do anything. If you needed to be active, if you needed to um, do manual labour, or if you needed to move somewhere quickly, this wouldn't be very good. Um, and so you would gird up your loins to allow you to be more able to move and more sort of prepared for action. And the point in particular here is that you would need to do this before you came to the time of action. Now, I tried this at home with a tablecloth. um, (laughs) And it was quite difficult. Um, I think partly because this necessarily isn't designed for tablecloths. But, I mean, again, for those of you who aren't wearing long-flowing tunics, feel free to grab a tablecloth from somewhere afterwards and give it a go yourself. But it takes a little bit of preparation in order to be ready to do this. And I think that's the same point that um, Peter is making here. If we go back to verse 13... Peter is saying that we should be preparing our minds for action, we should be girding up the loins of our minds. In other words, we should be making sure that our minds are ready for action. And this requires preparation from before the time when we actually need to perform that action. Likewise, he says that we need to be sober-minded. Now, the whole point of um, being sober-minded is to make sure that you are thinking clearly. If If you're doing something where you need to be thinking clearly, Um, you probably don't want to have drunk a lot of alcohol before that because that has an effect on the way that you think. But this also goes beyond just physical intoxication to mental intoxication, to having a preoccupation in our minds with things other than what we should be focused on, this hope. And I think this is what Peter is describing here, what Peter is telling us to be prepared to do. Because I think one of the actions that we need to do as people who are set apart in our salvation is to be people who are set apart in the hope that we have and in the way that we live as a result of that hope. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells the parable of the ten virgins. This is a story where ten virgins are waiting for the bridegroom to come. Five of them have prepared oil for the lamps, and five of them haven't. The bridegroom comes at midnight, and five of them are prepared and welcome him in, and the other five have to go and find oil. They are unprepared. And at the end of this, in Matthew 25 and verse 13, Jesus says this, therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. And I think it is because of this that we're told to be constantly prepared. If you knew that Jesus was going to come back in an hour's time, how would that affect how you spent this next hour? If you knew that Jesus was going to come back tomorrow or next week, how would this affect your evening and the way that you held out your week? This is the level of preparation that Peter is telling us to be at all times, to having our hope on this grace that Jesus is revealing for us. In verse 14 and 15 of our passage, we see similar things. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. So if holiness is being set apart, then conformity is the opposite of that. Conformity is remaining and sort of keeping in unity with with things that are happening. And in particular there is talking about conformity to evil desires. This is the contrast that Peter's setting up here. Contrast between conforming to evil desires and to be ready to be set apart and holy. And I think one of the ways that we do this is in the hope that we have and in the things that we're looking forward to. We live in a culture where hope can be found in all sorts of different places. But as Christians, our hope is primarily in the salvation that Jesus has brought to us already. And I think one of the main reasons that we may act in ways other than those that God has set aside from us is because our hope and our minds are set on things other than this hope. We have this hope for Jesus' coming and for other things. And I think anything that we do that leads us to act in a way that isn't in keeping with God's will at some point stems from having our hope in something else. If there were things that you were thinking about that you would do differently in the next hour or the next day if Jesus were to come soon, and he may well do, what are the hopes that you have that are stopping you from doing that now? So that's our first point. The second point is that we are set aside, set apart in our lives because of our redemption. And this stems from verses 17 to 21 of our passage. And we're going to start in verse 18. Verse 18 starts with the word for. So this is the motivation for what Peter has said in verse 17. And he says this. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And again, immediately here, what we see is we see a picture of things that God have already done for us. We see that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you. This is something that, again, has already happened to us. We have already received this redemption. And redemption is slavery language. It is language that would have been familiar to readers who knew about their Old Testament. In the Old Testament, slaves would be redeemed from their slavery if the price was paid for their slavery. If the price was paid by a redeemer, then they would be moved from being in slavery to being free. They would be bought and they would have this new life. And this is the language that Peter is using here to remind us that this has already happened for us. And he sets a distinction here. He says it's not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that we've been redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ. And this suggests a very different price has been paid to the one that we might expect. And to help get our minds into this, I want to talk a little bit about Monopoly. Of course. Um, Bear with me, I am going somewhere with this, I promise. Um, For those of you who are not aware of Monopoly, Monopoly is a board game that isn't very good. But... It... (laughs) I feel like that may be the most controversial thing I've said, so if I've still got you on side, then that's all good. Um, it's not a very good game, but it involves going round around the board, you collect money, and you buy properties. So for those of you who aren't familiar with Monopoly, then that's what it is. For those of you who are familiar with Monopoly, um, first, you will already have a pretty good idea of what Eternity feels like if you've ever played <laughs> a game of Monopoly. But more to the point, imagine the following situation. Imagine that you were playing Monopoly, and you were going round around the board, and you were collecting money. How much money, how many times, do you think you need to go round around the board before you would have enough money to buy a house? But not a house in Monopoly, a real house. This is the point. No matter how many times you go round around this board, no matter how much money you collect in Monopoly, it only has value in the game. It has no value in the real world. No matter how many times you go round this board, no matter how much you collect, you're not going to be able to exchange that for a real house. Likewise, if someone bought you the house in which you are currently playing Monopoly, then you wouldn't be able to repay them, no matter how many times you went around the board. The reason is that the real house is worth so much more than the money that you collect in Monopoly. And I think the same point is being made here. It is not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you are redeemed from your empty way of life, but with the precious blood of Christ. It doesn't matter how much earthly wealth we collect in this life, how much silver or gold or material possessions that we possess because none of this is enough to pay this price that needs to be paid for us. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 16 and verse 26. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? How much silver or gold will we need to accrue before we can pay this price that Jesus has already paid for us? The point is that we can't. The point is that we have no way of accruing the things that we need to pay for our lives and for our redemption. And the good news that Peter is leading into to the rest of this passage is that we don't need to pay this price. This price has already been paid for us. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, we are not our own. We have been bought at a price. And because we have been redeemed, because we have been bought as a price and taken from slavery into this new free position in which we find ourselves, this should and does radically transform the way in which we live and the way in which we are called to live. Let's look at verse 17, which says this. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. And I think there's a lot that we could drill into into this passage, but in particular, I want to focus on that phrase, live out your time as foreigners here because the the words foreigners and exile are phrases that come up a few times in Peter's letter. We see this in 1 Peter 1 verse 1, the very start of the letter, where he writes to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces. Later on in 2 verse 11, he says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. And in the passage we just looked at, he tells us to live out our time as foreigners here. This term foreigner or exile refers to a temporary residence in a foreign place away from the place where we have our permanent residence. It is a temporary residence somewhere else. And the point is that this is the situation that each of us find ourselves in. We find ourselves as temporary residents on this earth, but permanent residents as citizens of God's kingdom. I think this is something that is particularly prescient at the moment. It will not have escaped many of your notices that on Friday, Great Britain left the European Union. And I think part of the big conversation that was being held around Brexit over the past few years is what is our identity as residents? Are we residents and members of the British Empire? Are we residents of the European Empire? And I think the point is, regardless of where we stand on this, we are only temporary residents in either of those kingdoms. Our true residence is in God's kingdom. And because our true residence is there, that often means that we will face some sort of cultural difference. As any of you will know if you've come here from another culture or if you spent time living in another culture from here, you will know that you stand out because of the different culture that you experience. And there are some ways in which being part of a new culture, you find yourself acclimatizing to that culture and sort of surface level things. For instance, I highly encourage you, if you're traveling to another place, to immerse yourself in the culture of which side of the road you drive on. Because as confident as you are as proud British people to drive on the left-hand side of the road, that doesn't always go down well in other parts of the world. Not speaking from experience, just assuming, but that is one way in which we can adapt to the cultures that we find ourselves in. But that's very much surface level things. And I think we find that the very deep values that we hold as members of our culture are things that take a lot longer to change as we find ourselves immersed in a different culture. And these are the things that often we should hold on to when we find ourselves in a new culture. And as temporary residents here, but permanent residents in God's kingdom, we will find the culture of God's kingdom is sometimes different to the culture in which we find ourselves. And this is one of the challenges and one of the ways in which we can find ourselves living differently. Jesus puts it like this in John 17 and verse 14. He says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. As Christians here, we are members of the world, but we are not of the world. We are not in the world's culture, we are in God's culture. And part of the challenge of living the Christian life is learning how to live that culture in our lives. There are lots of ways to do this, and I think one way, which is simultaneously a very easy and a very complicated way to do it, is the way carried out by Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence was a monk who lived in the 1600s in Paris, And a lot of the sayings that he had and a lot of the wisdom that he had was written in a book called The Practice of the Presence of God. And I think this is summed up really well his philosophy in this quote where he says this, The most excellent method of going to God is that of doing our common business without any view of pleasing men and as far as we are capable purely for the love of God. The way that Brother Lawrence lived his life was to serve God in everything that he did Regardless of how small or how big, he describes picking up a straw purely for the love of God rather than for the approval of man. And this is one way that if we are able to do that, if we are able to live purely for the love of God and not for the love of man, we will find ourselves living distinctively. And again, I think if we think back to the ways in which we do live, we may find that there are ways in which we aren't living purely for the love of God. Maybe we can have a think about what those ways might be and how we might be able to change those. So this is how we're set apart in our lives, because of the redemption that God has paid for us. And finally, we are set apart in our love, because of our imperishability. Now, I've been assured by PowerPoint that imperishability is not a word. (laughs) But I feel like it fits, and I feel like it's understandable. So I've decided to keep it. And this is something that Peter talks about, only using actual words, in verse 23 of our passage where he says this, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. And again, as with everything else, this starts with something that God has already done for us. We have been born again as Christians, but not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And this again is a theme of the kind of things that Peter's been talking about throughout this letter. Right at the start, in, verses, in chapter one, in verses three and four, uh, Peter says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This is the inheritance that we as Christians have been provided. This is the way of life that we've been born into. And I think it's important for us to note that this isn't just the way of life that we ourselves have been brought into, but it's the way that all Christians have been brought into. If you have a quick look around at this building, at the people sitting around to you, I can see that nobody is doing that, Um, so I'll give you a second to look around to the people around you. The people you're looking at, the Christians around you, are also people who have been born of imperishable seed. These are people who are born into this inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And I think this really affects the way that we relate to other people. Verse 22 of our passage says this. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. And I think the way that we love other people, the way we love people around us, is really affected by our understanding of the people around us as imperishable people, as people who have been born again of imperishable seed. Now, when I first read this verse, I found it a little bit confusing. Now that you've purified yourself by obeying the truth, sure, again, that is coming from something that has already happened for us. God has purified us, and when we as Christians have accepted God's word, we have been purified. But I found the second bit a bit harder. He says that now we, are lo- we have sincere love for each other, we are to love one another. And I found that a bit confusing. I didn't really know exactly what Peter was trying to say here. And part of the difficulty here is that we in English only have one word for love. There are lots more words uh, in Greek for love. And indeed, in C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves, he talks about, and I'm gonna shock you here, four types of love. And we see two of them in this passage. This word love here in the passage is actually two different words, if we go on to the next slide. The first love is philio love, and the second love is agape love. And interestingly, these are probably the two of C.S. Lewis's four loves that we as a community, as a society, are least familiar with. The other two loves that C.S. Lewis talks about a storge love, which is empathy love. This is the love that you would see, for instance, between a mother and her child. And eros love, which is romantic love, which is the love that, in our society as a whole, is the one that we tend to see as potentially the only form of love that there is. But Peter's talking about two different types of love here from either of those. The first love that he's commending his audience for already exhibiting is this filio love. Filio love being friend love, love between... Friends. This is a love that I think those of us who've been in deep relationships with friends will know a little bit about already. There are examples of this all through the Bible. Probably one of the best known is the friendship between David and Jonathan in the Old Testament. If you want to get an idea of what a true filio love looks like, those are people who you should look at. But Peter's calling us to go beyond this filio love, as good a love as it is, towards this agape love. C.S. Lewis holds this as the highest of the four loves. Agape love is unconditional love. This is God love. This is the love that God shows for us and the love that we in turn are called to show for each other. This is unconditional love. This is not based on what people have done for us. And I think this is a distinction between the previous friend love that we've talked about before. Jesus puts it like this in Luke chapter 6 and verse 32. He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. The point is that if we are willing to love those who love for us, that is great and that is good, but that is not distinctive. It's not something that sets us apart. What sets us apart is not how we love those who love us, but how we love those who hate us. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And that is something we can only do if we're exhibiting not friend love or romantic love or parental love to them, but this unconditional agape love. And this is a love that in turn, I think we can only receive and truly understand if we understand our imperishable nature and the imperishable nature of the people we're interacting with. Peter gives us the practical outworking of this in chapters 2 and verse 1 of the passage that we've read today. It says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. And the first thing to note about this is that he's calling us to rid ourselves of all of this, all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. There is no space in the place that God is guiding us towards for having no malice and no deceit for some people or for most people. For a lot of us, we will find, that e- we will find it easy to rid ourselves of these things for people that we care for. And for other people, we will find this a lot harder for people that we don't get on with, or for famous politicians or people in the media who we disagree with. For some of us, we'll find it very difficult to express these kind of things to them, partly because of maybe how we feel about them. But the point is that we should have this unconditional love towards all of them. And the second point here is that all of these five things that Peter picks up are things that highly affect our relationships. If we go to the next slide, we have some definitions of these terms. Malice is the desire to cause pain to someone. Deceit is the act of deceiving somebody else. Hypocrisy is pretending to be somebody that we are not to other people. Envy is wanting what other people have. Slander is making false statements about other people. Every single one of these things that Peter is picking up on us in this passage is about how we relate to other people. And I think understanding how we can relate to other people, particularly people who we are brothers and sisters with in Christ and who have also been born of imperishable seed is a challenge and something we should really aim to strive more towards. So we've looked at how Christians are set apart in our salvation, in our redemption, and in our rebirth, our imperishability. And how as Christians, we should seek to be set apart in our hope, in our lives, and in our love. And to conclude, let's have a look at the last two verses of this passage, verses two and three of chapter two. Peter writes this, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. This analogy of babies and milk is one that's used a few times in the New Testament, for instance, in Hebrews or in 1 Corinthians. But I think it's important to note here that Peter's use of this analogy is different to the usage in those scenarios. In in other writers, when they talk about babies and milk, they're using it in the context of us needing to grow up and move on to solid food. But that's not the analogy that, that Peter is drawing out here. Instead, Peter is reminding us that babies eagerly desire milk as soon as they taste it. It's all that they want, and more to the point, it's all that they need. What comes from the mother has all the nutrients that they need in order for them to live. And once they taste it, they don't want anything else. This is the a thing that we are being called into ourselves. We're being called to learn to consume this pure spiritual milk. And this will help us to grow up in our salvation. Again, it's not what births us into our salvation. As we've said before, the salvation is already ours as Christians. So for those of us who are Christians here, we have already received this salvation. We've already received this redemption and this rebirth. And we're called to be set apart. And the way that we do that is by consuming this spiritual milk, by coming to God again and again and trying to receive that and to learn how we can grow further. For any of us here who are not Christians, this is something that is open to us as well. You are open to receive this salvation. You are able to receive this redemption and this rebirth into a new life. And you can receive it tonight. But for those of us who are Christians here, we should seek to crave this pure spiritual milk. We should seek to regularly seek out the word of God, to seek out who God is, and to try and learn from him more. So let's take a moment to do that now. Would you stand with me? And we'll pray. I'd like to start just by reading the 1 Peter passage again. And as I read it, would you listen to the words? And if there's anything that God is particularly drawing you towards, spend time dwelling on that and trying to understand what it is that God is saying to you. And hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever and this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Oh God, would you help us to understand more about how we can consume this spiritual milk? Would you help each one of us to learn how you are guiding us to grow up in our salvation. We thank you for all the things that you have done for us already, that you have paid a price that we could never pay for ourselves. And would you help us now to think more about how we can set our hope in you, how we can live our lives for you, and how we can love one another for you? Let's just take a moment of silence to hear anything that God might be saying to us.